Chapter thirty three of Frank Merriwell at Yale, or Freshman Against Freshman, by Bert L. Standish. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three Play Ball. Before night, Merriwell received an appealing letter from Ditson, in which the young scapegrace protested his sorrow and entreated Frank to do what he could to keep the matter quiet, so he would not be forced to leave Yale. Ditson declared it would break his mother's heart if he failed to complete his course at Yale. Over and over he entreated forgiveness, telling how sorry he was that he had ever tried to injure Merriwell in any way, and declaring that if Frank would forgive and forget, he would never cause him any further trouble. Frank pondered over the letter so long, and with such a serious look on his face, that Harry asked him what he had struck. Then Merriwell read it to his roommate. Oh, what a sniserable meek, I mean, miserable sneak that fellow is, exclaimed Harry. He goes into a dirty piece of business like this, and then he gets down and crawls, actually crawls. I have no doubt but his mother is proud of him, said Frank. He says he is an only son. It is his mother, not Ditson, I am thinking about. I do not wish to cause her so much pain. Oh, come off of it. If a fellow is such a snake as Ditson, he must get it from his parents on one side or the other. Perhaps his mother is not so good. I do not wish to think that of any fellow's mother. I much prefer to think that he takes all his bad qualities from the other side of the house. I remember my own mother, the dearest, gentlest, sweetest woman in all the world. How she loved me! How proud she was of me! All the better part of my nature I owe to her. God bless her! Frank spoke with deep feeling, and Rattleton was touched and silenced. Merriwell arose and walked the floor, and there was an expression of the utmost tenderness and adoration on his face, a look that brought something like a mist to Harry's eyes. Frank seemed to have forgotten his companion, and he gently murmured, My angel mother. That was too much for Harry, and he coughed huskily in an attempt to break the spell without being rude. Frank immediately turned and said, I beg your pardon, old man. I forgot myself for a moment. Oh, don't pard my begonner, that is, begon my pard, no, I mean, peg my bard on. Hang it all, I'm all twisted, I don't know what I'm trying to say. In confusion, Harry got up and went to look out the window. Gee, Whitaker, I'm glad Mary don't get this way often, he thought. Never knew him to do it before. After some moments, Frank declared, I'm going to try to hush this Ditson matter up, Harry. You are? Yes, for the sake of Ditson's mother. I want you to help me. We'll go see Putnam and Jones. If they have told anybody, we'll see the others. I'm the one who has the greatest cause for complaint, and if I'm willing to drop it, I'm sure Putnam should be. Come on, old man, let's not lose any time. Well, I suppose you are right, admitted Harry, as he reached for his cap but there's not another person on top of the earth who could induce me to keep still in such a case. It is a second offense, too. So they went out together and searched for Putnam and Jones. At first Putnam was obstinate, and utterly refused to let Ditson off, but Frank took him aside and talked earnestly to him for fifteen minutes, finally securing his promise to keep silent. It was not difficult to silence Jones, and so the matter was hushed up for the time. Nothing was said to Ditson, who was left in suspense as to what course would be pursued. A day or two later came the very thing that had been anticipated and discussed. 
since the freshman game at Cambridge. Merriwell was selected as one of the pitchers on the varsity nine, and the freshmen lost him from their team. Putnam came out frankly and confessed that he had feared something of the kind all along, and Frank was in no mood to kick over his past treatment, so nothing was said on that point. In the first game against a weaker team than Harvard, Merriwell was tried in the box and pitched a superb game, which Yale won in a walk. Big Hugh Heffener, the regular pitcher, whose arm was in a bad way, complimented Merriwell on his work, which he said was simply great. Of course, Frank felt well. As for him, there was no sport he admired so much as baseball. But he remained the same old Merriwell, and his freshman comrades could not see the least change in his manner. The second game of the series with Harvard came off within a week, but Frank got cold in his arm, and he was not in the best possible condition to go into the box. This he told Pearson, and as Hefner had almost entirely recovered, Frank was left on the bench. The varsity team had another pitcher, who was known as Dad Hicks. He was a man about twenty-eight years old, and looked even older, hence the nickname of Dad. This man was most erratic and could not be relied upon. Sometimes he would do brilliant work, and at other times children could have batted him all over the lot. He was used only in desperate emergencies, and could not be counted on in a pinch. During the whole of the second game with Harvard, Frank sat on the bench, ready to go into the box if called on. At first it looked as if he would have to go in, for the Harvard boys fell upon Heffner and pounded him severely for two innings. Then you braced up and pitched the game through to the end in brilliant style. Yale winning by a score of ten to seven. Heffener, however, was forced to bathe his arm in which Hazel frequently, and as he went toward the box for the last time, he said to Frank with a rueful smile, You'll have to get into shape to pitch the last game of the series with these chaps. My arm is the same as gone now, and I'll finish it this inning. We must win this game anyway, regardless of arms, so here goes. He could barely get the balls over the plate, but he used his head in a wonderful manner, and the slow ball proved a complete puzzle for Harvard after they had been batting speed all through the game. So they got but one safe hit off Heffner that inning, and no scores. There was a wild jubilee at Yale that night. A bonfire was built on the campus, and the students blew horns, sang songs, cheered for good old Yale, and had a really lively time. One or two of the envious ones asked about Merriwell, why he was not allowed to pitch, even Hartworth, the sophomore who disliked Frank from the first, more than hinted that the freshman pitcher was being made sport of, and that he would not be allowed to go into the box when Yale was playing a team of any consequence. Jack Diamond overheard the remark, and he promptly offered to bet Hartworth any sum that Merriwell would pitch the next game against Harvard. Diamond was a freshman, and so he received a calling down from Hartwick, who told him he was altogether too new. But as Hartwick strolled away, Diamond quietly said, I may be new, sir, but I back up any talk I make. There are others who do not, sir. Hartwick made no reply. As the third and final game of the series was to be played on neutral ground, there had been some disagreement about the location, but Springfield had finally been decided upon and accepted by Yale and Harvard. Frank did his best to keep his arm in good condition for that game something which Pearson approved. Hicks was used as much as possible in all other games, but Frank found it necessary to pull one or two off the coals for him. Hefner had indeed used his arm up in the grand struggle to win the second game from Harvard, 
the game that it was absolutely necessary for yale to secure he tended that arm as if it were a baby but it had been strained severely and it came into shape very slowly as soon as possible he tried to do a little throwing every day but it was some time before he could get a ball more than ten or fifteen feet it became generally known that Merriwell would have to pitch at Springfield, beyond a doubt, and the greatest anxiety was felt at Yale. Every man had confidence in Heffner, but it was believed by the majority that the freshman was still raw, and therefore was liable to make a wretched fizzle of it. Heffner did not think so. He coached Merriwell almost every day, and his confidence in Frank increased. The boy is all right, was all he would say about it, but that did not satisfy the anxious ones. During the week before the deciding game was to come off, Heffner's arm improved more rapidly than it had at any time before, and scores of men urged Pearson to put old Reliable, as Hugh was sometimes called, into the box. A big crowd went up to Springfield on the day of the great game, but the sons of old Eli were far from confident, although they were determined to root for their team to the last gasp. The most disquieting rumors had been afloat concerning Harvard, who said her team was in a third better condition than at the opening of the season, when she took the first game from Yale, and it could not be claimed with honesty that the Yale team was apparently in any better shape. Although she had won the second game of the series with Harvard, her progress had not been satisfactory. A monster crowd had gathered to witness the deciding game. Blue and crimson were the prevailing colors. On the bleachers at one side of the grandstand, sat hundreds upon hundreds of harvard men cheering all together and being answered by the hundreds of yale men on the other side of the grandstand there were plenty of ladies and citizens present and the scene was inspiring a band of music served to quicken the blood in the veins which were already throbbing there was short preliminary practice and then at exactly three o'clock the umpire walked down behind the home plate and called play ball End of chapter 33